Welcome to, or welcome back to, the Journey Through Life podcast. I am Justin Barton, and this is my show. Some of you may or may not have already listened to this podcast before, but it's all about ordinary people with extraordinary stories and allowing a space where people can reflect on our own lives and look inward to learn lessons from life lessons and experiences of the guests of this show. I also invite my awesome guests to share some of the things that are most important to them so that future generations can receive words of wisdom directly from those who lived their lives and experienced the world today. If you have not already subscribed, go do it right now on whatever podcast platform you are hearing this on. That way, you can continue to reflect and learn from the experiences of current, past, and future guests. You can also like us on Facebook and Instagram. The handle is at JTL Podcast for both of those places. Also, you can check out our website and nominate yourself or a loved one to be a future guest right there at www.jtlpod.com. Now, today's guest turned out to be a fantastic, yet ordinary person with an extraordinary story and lessons learned and shared with us and with future generations. Richard Long is that guest. And I have entitled this podcast, Life is a Constant Puzzle, A Journey Through Life with Richard Long. Some thoughts that I invite you to consider while listening are what it means to not take the path of least resistance, and also to consider that pers- consider what personal liberty and freedom means to you. Now, I invite you to please go check out our sponsors, alifeuntold.com, and use promo code Justin at checkout to save 10% on a personalized and hardbound book of your personal history to be left as a legacy for those who come after you. Also, check out www.shepherdbrackets.com for awesome brackets to create your own open shelving concept in your kitchen, bathroom, or anywhere else you would like some stylish and high-quality floating shelves in your home. Use promo code JTLPOD5 to save 5% on all orders there. Let's jump right into this very meaningful and self-reflective conversation with Richard Long. I know that you and someone you love will get a ton out of this conversation. So, if while listening, you think, huh, so-and-so should really hear this podcast, well, then please share it with so-and-so and with everybody else in your circle of influence. Here we go with Life is a Constant Puzzle, A Journey with Richard Long. All right, so so I'm sitting here with Richard Long. Uh, he and I, our paths crossed, I don't know, at least 15 years ago, I think. Is yeah. We've had our physical interactions way back in the day in East Mesa. And, you know, as as I have been developing and working on this podcast, I've, I've thought of people from my past and my present who I think would have really cool stories, but if you just met them on the street, you'd think, oh, that's just a regular old person, you know? And uh, Richard, you're one of those people that as I was going down my list, I was like, man, he's probably got a great story to tell. So what I want to do, let's start way back. Go back to your earliest days. Where were you born? Tell me a little bit about the the environment you grew up in. Yeah, so um, I was born in Maryland. My dad was a, uh, he was a salesman for Decab Feed and Seed, um, which has since become Monsanto. And he quickly... Um, after I was born, decided to do a career change and become a chiropractor. And so we went, we went to school at Life Chiropractic College 
in, um, in Marietta, Georgia. What's interesting, I was actually in the same ward with Dale Murphy, which was, oh, wow. you know, he's, he's been a hero of mine um, since I, was, I used, to carry his, used to carry his baseball card around my back pocket. Oh, when I was that's a little awesome. kid, man, I thought he was just all that in a bag of chips. Mm-hmm. Um, so went, went to school there at Life Chiropractic College. And uh, then my dad decided to, to settle in a town called Chapin, South Carolina. So I was raised in the dirty South. Mm. And yeah, my, my dad, uh, this career change, you know, it, it struggled. It was, it was tough. We lived in, in the back of a beauty salon um, mm. with four kids and, and one on the way. And so it was, it was a one bedroom and then there was a kitchen, a, a small kitchen. And, uh, so we lived there, gosh, year probably. Mm-hmm. How old and were you at that point? I was six, seven, eight. Oh, so you, you definitely remember it. Oh yeah. No, I remember it vividly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, Chapin is a small town. It's grown quite a bit since then, um, because of Lake Murray, which is a really popular lake there in South Carolina. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, um, we lived there very, very humble. And while we were building a double wide trailer, mm. um, which is pretty fascinating. And wow. uh, so then we moved into this, this palatial estate. I'm just kidding. <laughs> we moved into this double wide trailer. And by that time, there was five of us. And then there was actually another baby on the way soon after that. Wow. Um, and so we lived in this double wide trailer. My dad was working as a chiropractor um, there in South Carolina. And thankfully, he was really good at what he did. And thankfully, he was a man of extreme integrity and so his business grew and he did well and eventually we got to the point when uh when i was 12 or 13 where we could build our own house and so my parents kind of built their their dream house if you will up on a hill just around the corner from the double wide trailer Mm. so that's kind of what i what i was raised in and and some of the salient um experiences there my my parents are uh were converts to the church um, in fact, one of the cool stories that shaped my life um, has been a really powerful um, influence in my life was on, on my mission, uh, meeting the, the, the missionary that actually taught and baptized them. Oh, wow. Um, so really, really cool, cool stuff. So, yes, yeah, so my parents were converts. My mom's family disowned her when she joined the church. Uh, they were really strong Southern Baptist mm. and uh, disowned, disinherited her. Eventually, after a few years, uh, they reconciled, which was really powerful experience in our life because we had grandparents mm. that we could be with. My father's parents were much more understanding, but still disapproved greatly. Mm. And uh, so, so my parents kind of uh, trod a, a different path. They didn't take mm. the path of least resistance at all. Um, yeah, it sounds like that's kind of a, a theme, at least so far, is not taking the path of least resistance. Yeah. What what kind of influence does that have on you seeing them walk that path as you've as you've grown up? Well, um, I keep switching careers. I'm just <laughs> kidding. Um, <laughs> no, I think it's something that this idea of of the struggle, right? Um, th- there's a book I read recently called The Obstacle is the Way. And this idea of struggle and how that shapes us and how that helps us um, develop these characteristics that can really um, benefit us in our life. And so I, I, I think that happened from a, from a young age for me where I, I, I saw my family struggle financially. My, my family chose to have seven children, which is, you know, a ton of kids. 
Um, I have four today, which I joke is kind of like seven back in the day. You know, you can kind of multiply each kid by two and that's what it would be like 20 or 30 years ago. And so definitely this idea of taking the path of least, uh, not taking the path of least resistance has been a theme uh, throughout my life. And I think today it's something that I'm going through right now um, Hmm. with this career change. I had a really great job um, in in a school district here in Mesa Public Schools. I was an assistant principal at Westwood High School, which mm. is about 3,400 students yeah. in Westwood High School. Very diverse, lots of, lots of poverty and uh, lots of challenges as a result. And I, I loved uh, being there. I was the athletic director and, and, mm. and assistant principal. And I had a friend of mine approach me uh, back in January and said, hey, we are developing. He, his name's Trevor. He owns a company um, called American Community Corrections Institute. Um, and they've been working in criminal justice space forever and ever. And he said, hey, we're developing our cognitive life skills courses for, for schools. And we want to help decrease out-of-school suspension rates. And we want to Im- help schools implement restorative justice practices and, and, and help uh, with their dro- decrease their dropout rates. Mm-hmm. And as I talked to him, I was like, man, that, that's a fantastic idea. Westwood could use that right now, mm-hmm. right? It, it's a no-brainer. And so as we continued talking about implementing it there at Westwood and different things and what we'd have to, to do, he was like, hey, I actually want you to be the person to help, t- help me take this to schools. Mm. So this kind of melding of school and education and social work has been something that's been all throughout my life. I have a master's degree in social work and a mm. master's degree in education, leadership. Mm. And so as I was listening to him, I was like, man, this is a, this is a phenomenal uh, venture right? Mm -hmm. This is something that could really make a huge impact and something that schools desperately need right now. But at the same time, I have this really nice, stable, secure job um, that I I didn't make a ton of money, but I I made enough, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, things were stable and secure, but, but I had this opportunity the way I saw it to really go and change public education in a huge way. But it's tough yeah. because people are creatures of habits and school districts and, and educators are doing their darndest on a daily basis. And I got nothing but respect for them. And of course, I was one of them for a long time and, right. and, uh, and, and love the work they do. But I chose to leave that safe, stable, secure um, position and kind of trod this path of, 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 of difficulty and trying to do a startup business and at the same time change the way educators are, are doing things. Mm, that does sound like quite the obstacle in the path of, of great resistance at this point, huh? It really is. It really is. It's tough. You know, it's, so what a, are, it's a totally different kind of job. And So what are you learning right now that you wouldn't be learning if you were in that stable uh, position? What are some things that you're taking from it so far? Well, number one, I suck at being a salesman. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> No, I think that the the biggest thing I'm learning is it, it, actually I'm having to relearn or learn anew so many uh, things about how to interact with folks, um, how to have difficult conversations with people, how to um, help people see the benefits of something that's a little bit outside of their 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 box, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm I'm having to learn how to how to be humble through this whole mm-hmm. thing. I, I felt like I'd gotten to a point 
as an assistant principal and as an educator where I felt like I was, I was able to make an impact and, and I was, I was good at my job mm-hmm. and, and taking on this job. Um, it's been really humbling. It's been something that stretched me and challenged me in, in, in lots of different ways. The biggest, one of the biggest ways is that I'm a very social individual. I really love people, um, kind of extroverted to the extreme mm. and, and love being around people and love having conversations. It, it, it gives me energy, right? When, mm-hmm. I, when I do that. And so kind of being a lone wolf, mm-hmm. um, if you will, I'm, I'm working out of my home. I'm traveling to and from places, uh, spending a lot of time uh, by myself. It's, it's really caused, you know, some, some, some difficulty. And so finding a way to, to get social interaction and at the same time do my job and make sure that's happening in a good way, that's been a really huge struggle. Mm right now and uh and then just get doing a startup business which anyone who's done a startup business knows how difficult it is um, in the beginning and in education you're kind of used to working in this environment that's kind of ready-made you know and and you just kind of jump in the machine and, and and run with it right um and so doing this we're trying to help people put a a wedge, you know, put, put something to stop that machine for a little bit. This machine is not the best way to do things, right? Right. This, th- this thing is going in motion here and we want you to stick something into it. And, yeah. uh, and which will and disrupt pause. things a little bit up front, but exactly the, the theory and the hope is that in the end, it'll make it that much better. Right. That's the hope. And, and that's what's happened. That's what my dad did. Right. That's yeah. What, that's what he did when he decided to go be a chiropractor. He stuck a, he, he, he stuck, a wedge in that machine and said, Hey, let's halt this thing and see if we can do something different. Now, the difficulty is that that can be a difficult path to trod. Are, are you, and I'm, and I'm going to kind of go here for a few minutes. Are you yeah. seeing, are you seeing some connection or some, some, some similarities further than, you know, Hey, this is what my dad did. This is what I'm doing. Are you seeing potential financial real hardships from the decision? Are you seeing those types of things in your life that are a struggle for your wife and kids right now? Or, um, I mean, things are tighter now because I don't have, um, my my salary is, is quite a bit lower Mm -hmm. than it was, um, in the school district. But of course there's, there's a commission, um, along with that, which I'm not making right now. So things Mm -hmm. are tight. Mm -hmm. Um, no doubt about that from a financial standpoint. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're making it work. Um, mm-hmm. Amber's, Amber's picking up a lot of the slack and we're, we're, we're having to work together and cut out a few things that we, that we enjoy. And I'm having to, to work my tail off yeah. and, uh, as, as hard or harder than I've ever worked before in order to try to, 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 to get this thing off the ground. And the good thing is there's some traction, you know, in, in some places, the schools that are implementing it. Mm-hmm. Um, are getting some phenomenal feedback, which okay. we, we knew would happen. So we feel like it's just a matter of time. But in the meantime, yeah, man, it is, yeah, it is, it is no joke difficult. Mm. But you know what? We, I firmly believe in what we're doing. I, and, and I know from, from real interactions as an assistant principal who administered discipline to students that suspending students is the least effective way to bring about change and, and to get the outcomes that we want as educators and the outcomes that we want for the youth of today, mm. um, as, as far as school discipline goes. And yeah. so if I can shift, if I can change, if I can be 
part of that change in school discipline, then it'll be, it'll be worth it. And I have faith that we have some great tools to help administrators. So you got to have faith in that and you got to have faith in the thoughts and the feelings and the prayers and all the Mm -hmm. stuff that went into it that said, Hey, this is, this is where we're heading. This is what we're going to do. And, uh, it'll hopefully work out. That's really cool. And I think, you know, but I work with professionals who work in, in education and I know it's a very evidence-based, you got to show the evidence before they're going to react at all. And it's a slow reaction in many cases, you know, very Uh, slow. Yeah. (laughs) So so now that you're getting feedback from, from districts that are implementing this, you got some evidence-based and that can start, like you said, get that traction really going and get that flywheel going, going better. Yeah. yeah, no, for sure. And, and, and that's where the, the company that I'm working for, ACCI, has been around for over 40 years in the criminal justice space. Mm-hmm. And so the evidence is there. The, the model has proven efficient working with pretty hardcore offenders, uh, mm-hmm. parolees, probationers, lots of different justice-involved individuals, mm-hmm. um, working with justice courts, working with juvenile probation and parole, and working with adult probation and parole, mm-hmm. um, working with all kinds of different justice-involved individuals, there's been some great results. Um, That's really cool. So, so the evidence is there. The thing that you're referring to is fascinating. When I go and talk to schools, almost one of their very first questions is, who else is doing this? What other mm-hmm. school district is implementing this? Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what are the outcomes they're getting? Yep. So this idea, and listen, I, I was very similar, is we all want to be innovative in mm-hmm. schools, right? Right. We all want to, to laud innovation and laud kind of thinking out of the box and doing this new thing and being creative. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, educators are very hesitant to go down this path mm-hmm. and very hesitant, even when evidence-based practices are there, even when the model is steeped in research and, and tons and tons of outcome studies and, and, and evidence-based, mm-hmm. they are still hesitant. And, and part of that is because of the scarcity of resources, mm. right? right. Um, scarcity of resources creates, I think, a lot of that fear, if you will. Yeah, it's fear. And, I think it is fear. Yeah, no mm-hmm. doubt. It's fear. And so, especially here in Arizona, which is where I'm focused, mm-hmm. actually, we are working with schools and districts all over the nation, but here in Arizona specifically, mm-hmm. you know, the, the education record here in Arizona is not a good one. Um, right. when it comes yeah. to per pupil spending and things along those lines. And so that scarcity of resources is creating a lot of fear and hesitancy. Um, mm-hmm. I think particularly for, for, for schools here, here, here in Arizona. That's a, it's a tough mountain to claw, climb. There's an obstacle in the way there. But, no doubt. Uh, it sounds like you're pushing, pushing that rock and, and I think you'll get there. Now, one, one of the so. things you mentioned, yeah, one of the things you mentioned earlier that I, want to go back to and then take a little bit of a different path here mm-hmm. in your life from what I think I remember of you. You said you had to learn anew to have difficult conversations or to lean into difficult conversations. Tell me a little bit about why you have to learn that anew. Maybe what, what you had learned in the past that you have to reapply that maybe you hadn't applied for a while. Yeah, so um, my previous profession before I got into education Mm-hmm. Um, was as a social worker. Mm-hmm. And as a social worker, I had some tremendously difficult conversations with people. And typically it would be around, because I, I worked with youth. Um, I worked in uh, therapeutic boarding schools and residential treatment centers. And so we would have very difficult conversations uh, with the youth. 
Mm-hmm. And oftentimes when we had family therapy, we would, we would have very difficult conversations with their parents. And so having those difficult conversations w- w- was not something that I, that I dreaded. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the beginning, it was tough, mm-hmm. right? And, and I'd prepare for them and make sure I was doing a good job. But as I started having them more, I, I felt more prepared um, naturally, right? And, and could get into those conversations and really be clear and concise and engage in these difficult conversations that were very emotional, mm-hmm. right? And so there are some principles that apply with that in my new job, but the difference is that here I'm having to push for those conversations mm-hmm. and, and I'm having to, it's difficult for me because I've always kind of been this individual that mm-hmm. said, Hey, here is what I have to offer. Take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, that doesn't work very well when you're trying to get people to change the way they're doing things. Right. And so I've had to change my mentality as I've gone into this and really push people on some of the difficult things that they're dealing with in their schools because people don't like to go there. They don't, they don't like to go to those difficult places. And just like when I was a therapist, right? Mm -hmm. It's just a different, it's just a different thing. People don't like to go to those places of pain and those places of emotional hurt when you're, when, when you're in therapy and when you're, when you're doing therapy with folks, and then what I'm finding here is that educators don't like to go to these, these difficult places of, yes, our dropout rate is, you know, this, and, mm-hmm. and it should be this, mm-hmm. right? And they don't like to talk about those kind of things. And yes, we're still, we're still suspending students for this and not providing any, any intervention whatsoever. We're just suspending. And so um, anyway, uh, that's been kind of the difficulty or, or with, with, with learning anew, if you will is still difficult conversations, just in a totally new context, totally different context. Yeah. And and I've also learned and observed and experienced for myself. I don't like going to the the depths of the deep, dark places of myself or of the situations I'm in. It's, it's not a fun thing, but I have learned by uh, actually going there and seeing what's really there, just how helpful that actually is as painful as it can be. Tell me a little bit about maybe your personal experience of going into those deep, dark places yourself and how that has made you a better person, maybe. Yeah. So that is a, uh, that's a long story, man. Thanks. We got a lot of time here. Yeah. Um, we got time. <laughs> so when, when I was younger, um, in my youth, I struggled tremendously with, with addiction. Mm-hmm. And struggled in a huge way with with uh, multiple different types of substances. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, when I was 18 years old, I found myself in a world of hurt. I was had been kicked out of college. I was on academic probation after my first semester mm-hmm. at College of Charleston in South Carolina, and then after the second semester, I was suspended academically. Mm-hmm. And I was in trouble with the law, and I was in trouble with my parents. And uh, I found myself in a really tough spot. Mm. And my parents came to me and, and my, my mom said that she feared for my life and was very emotional and said that, that I needed to, to go away mm. and that I needed to go to a place called the Anasazi Foundation. Mm. Um, and when I had gotten arrested my junior year, actually it was the end of my junior year, um, over the summer, I reckon, of my, in between my junior and senior year, 
my parents had contemplated sending me to Anasazi, but I kind of talked my way out of it and, mm. and told them that I would straighten, straighten up and fly right and those kind of things. And that lasted for a while, but then I quickly um, fell back into, into destructive patterns and habits. So, so this time around, my parents said, hey, we need to send you, we're, we're, we're going to send you Anasazi. Um, but being 18 years old, um, I had to choose to go. Mm. So what they held over my head or what they told me is that, hey, we'll, we will forgive uh, these debts. We'll pay these fines. We'll take care of all this stuff that you owe um, if you go to Anasazi. So mm. I went to Anasazi not wanting to go and uh, in this place of being a mercenary. Mm. So for me, I was making about $100 a day mm. being out there. Mm. And uh, I was going to be out there for, for eight weeks. You're making and that money because that's what your parents were paying off. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So my debts were being forgiven. They were paying fines. They were taking care of all that stuff that I needed. Right. Um, and that's kind of how you viewed it at that point? Yeah, I was total mercenary. Okay. Total mercenary. So I'm going out there. I'm going to work. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this for two months and get rid of all this stuff and come back and do the same. I mean, I was going to do the same thing that I, that I was doing, you know, that right. I felt like that was most free way to live. I was all about freedom and, mm-hmm. and, uh, this, this skewed view of, of, of liberty and, and freedom and, uh, and this skewed view of, of, of what it meant to live life to the fullest. Right. And so I, I went out to Anasazi and, uh, it's pretty incredible how this ties into the not taking the path of least resistance. Well, nothing yeah. at Anasazi um, is without resistance. N- nature in and of itself provides tremendous resistance um, to, to com- comfortable living. And especially when you're, you're living in such a primitive style. And so at, at Anasazi, I, I was challenged in a really, really real way um, from nature and from the people there that worked for Anasazi. It challenged me in a tremendous way to, to look at the way I was viewing the world, to look at the way I was viewing other people, um, to encounter my own selfishness and, and pride, and to look at the way I was blaming anyone and everyone for the issues that I had in my life and the way I was dismissing those issues um, in a way that perpetuated my own misery. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would seek to get out of that misery and get out of that difficulty through, through my addiction, right. Um, which was growing ever stronger. Right. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to go there and I had no desire to go there. And I don't know if I could have gone there, if it hadn't been for nature, just flat out kicking my butt. Mm. So what's beautiful about that is that nature was providing this, this resistance that was so needed and helping me see myself in this way of, of needing help. And then the people that worked there at Anasazi um, were so loving and caring and they wanted to help me, but I had to reach out for that help. Mm. And, and so they would wait. Um, they would wait for me to ask. Mm. Um, they would allow me to struggle in, in the moment. They, they, they would allow me to have difficulty, but then they, they would invite me. So um, before we move on to the next part, I want to sit there for a second. Yeah. I envision, and this is a powerful image in my own mind. I want to see if what it looks like to you. I envision these people's hands reached out just outside of arm reach from you, kind of just reached out, just waiting with its silent invitation of grab hold, I'll take you from here. 
and you have to do that. In my mind, I see the arm of God. I see the arm of the Savior reaching out, doing something similar to me in my own life. And that is a really powerful thing. The invitation's there. Come and get it. I just have to reach out and take it. So does that, does that ring true to you in, in any sense or how does that look to you? Yeah. So I can, I can share with you an experience I had, um, mm. there at Anasazi. So it was my, um, my third week out there, started my third week. And part of the difficulty being in the desert is that there's not a lot of water, right? And you have to have water in order to live. Mm-hmm. Um, and dehydration is a real thing. And, and what you learn in, in, at Anasazi and what, what you see is that there's, there's water sources, lots of different types of water sources, right? Mm-hmm. And some of them are not enjoyable to drink, mm-hmm. but you have to drink them anyway. Mm-hmm. And other times there's really good water sources, but you have to work a little harder to get there, hike a little further to get there. Mm-hmm. So this, this one hike that we were doing as we were going, cause at Anasazi, you go from point A to point B. And, and they call it final destination each week. You're getting to your final destination. And, and, you, and you hike and camp each day along the way. Or five out of the seven days. Or, you know, four out okay. of the six days. Whatever it has to be. Mm-hmm. And so we're going on this hike. And the, the, the trail walkers there, the people that are, that are leading us out there, said, hey, we're going to go from this point to this point today. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be long. And as we go up this creek bed, um, it could get, could get pretty difficult. Well, as we were going we noticed there were these huge pools of water that were stagnant and nasty and gross, Mm. right? No Mm. one wanted to camp on those things. Algae filled, tadpoles, bugs, you name it, right? Living Mm -hmm. in there. No one wanted to drink that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so um, we had to scale around these pools of water though, in order to get and and head to the, to the spring that we were trying to get to. Mm. Well, um, at one particular pool of water, there there was a really difficult scale around the pool of water, or you could go up the side of the cliff, if you will, Mm -hmm. and then go across the top and then drop back in. Mm -hmm. And so at that point in time, the group split. And and so uh, some of the the group scaled it and went over and others of us decided to go up and over and back down, thinking it would be an easy recovery. Mm -hmm. What happened was, as we started going up, we realized that that was not the right way to go because mm. as we got further up, we encountered catclaw mm. and catclaw is nasty. I mean, it's like mm. a cross between a rose bush and a mesquite bush and it just rips you. I mean, it has these claws on it and just, it just rips you to shreds mm. and the catclaw was thick up on top. But as we were going further, as we're going up, we realized we couldn't go back down because the cliff was so steep and, and things were muddy. It had, it had been uh, drizzling and raining. And so we couldn't go back down, but, and, and we didn't want to go up, but we had to. And so we mm. kept going up. We made it up to the top, and then we started going across through this cat claw. Mm. And then darkness started to settle in. Mm. And we're separated from our group. And we're all really, really scared. Mm. And even the, the trail walker that was with us was really nervous. Mm. Um, and could, uh, we could feel... Um, her being very scared. Mm. And so one of the young walkers, one of the kids that was out there with me, mm-hmm. one of my peers was like, hey, we ought to say a prayer. And uh, at the time, I, I didn't pray and didn't, didn't believe I was very uh, ag- agnostic at best and uh, atheist at worst, I think, uh, depending on the day you found me. 
And so I was, I was like, yeah, sure. We can stop and do that. And everyone else was like, yeah, sure. We can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this kid started praying and then asked if anyone else wanted to pray. And so I said kind of the, the, uh, the agnostic prayer, right? Mm-hmm. Like God, if there is a God, um, please, please help us. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so we all, we all took turns kind of saying a prayer and then we decided, okay, we're going to go this way. And, it looks like there might be a ravine up here that we can try to make our way back down because you can't scale it with the straight cliffs. You have to go up a ravine, right? Mm-hmm. So eventually make our way over and we find this ravine, but it's pitch black dark and no one has a light because mm-hmm. we, didn't, we didn't use artificial lights there at Anasazi, mm-hmm. except the trail walker had a headlamp, but it was one headlamp for five of us. And so we start going down this ravine and it gets really sketchy in a, in a few sections and we're all scared and we're asking things like, Hey, is, you know, is, is, do they do helicopter rescues here at Anasazi? You know, mm-hmm. um, do they do this? They do that. And so as we're sitting there and we're trying to make our way down, this other group comes up from behind us and they hear us because we're hooting, right? Mm-hmm. We're like trying to get a hold of people and they, they come up the ravine and they help us down these difficult sections. You know, there's two or three difficult kind of 10 foot slabs, if you will. Um, we're going down would result in a pretty serious tumble and things are slick and, and wet mm-hmm. and muddy. And anyway, we, we find our way back down. And as we get back down to the Creek bed, it's a place of relative, relative safety cause we're at least from stable ground mm-hmm. and it starts dumping rain. Mm-hmm. And so we're just miserable, mm-hmm. dark, wet, tired as all get out. We've been hiking almost all day long, really crappy water. We've been drinking. Mm-hmm. You know, and as we're sitting there and finally I was, I was one of the oldest guys out there because mm-hmm. it was, it was uh, 13 to 18 years old. So I was, mm-hmm. I was 18 and one of the oldest. And I was like, listen, I'm not going any further. I don't care what you say. I'm going to sit right here. I'm mm-hmm. not going any further at all. This is ridiculous. You know, and the other trail walkers in the group are trying to help me. Hey, we're almost there. We can, I was like, no, we're, we're, we're not almost there. I'm heard that all day long, mm-hmm. you know, kind of thing. And so in my, I was still fighting it, right? Mm-hmm. I'm still, I'm, I'm, I'm just beat down, man. And I am fighting it. Mm-hmm. And I am like, dude, keep, you know, you can keep it stinging that arm, you know, double fisted F you basically. Mm-hmm. I am no way am I doing anything else and just fighting it, right? Mm-hmm. The arms extended and I'm fighting it. Mm-hmm. And then eventually this, one of the trail walkers from our group that had, we had gotten split up from earlier in the day comes back and he's like, Hey, we, we found the spring. Um, it's about a half mile, three quarters of a mile away. We, we really are almost there. And we found a, a flat place to camp and we, we've got a huge fire. We can dry out all your stuff and we'd love for you to come with us. Right. And I just, I, I was so mad. You think I'd be happy, right? Yeah. I was so mad. I was just like, this is ridiculous. I can't believe y'all are putting us through this. This is doing no good for anyone. It's just making us more mad, mm-hmm. right? And I was so angry. But we all get up and we hike and we make it there and we set up things. That night when I got in, I just, I just cried, mm-hmm. right? I just cried. I was so angry and so mad. It was an angry so cry, not a, uh, not a realization. It was an right? angry cry. Yeah. But over the night, it turned into this realization cry Mm. where the next day I started to realize, um, thankfully to this awesome trail walker, 
Mm. Um, uh, basically said, hey, man, how's this like your life? Mm. What does this look like? How have you done this in your life? Right? You had a really hard day yesterday and you just fought it and fought it and fought it the whole way through. What does that look like? We're extending really great stuff to you. We're extending a new way of life and you are just saying, screw it. Mm -hmm. I want to stay stuck. You know, what was it like yesterday? Tell me about that. Mm. And I start reflecting and I start thinking. And I get to this point where I eventually wanted to do things differently. And I realized that I don't need to keep kicking against the pricks to use a cliche mm -hmm. that, that in my, in, in my life, humility can be a really, really beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, humility can help us start anew as we go through these difficult circumstances. And so as I, as I reflected that next day, you know, the, the trail walker was talking to me and helped me think through some things. I went off by myself because I, I think I was too ashamed mm -hmm. to, to talk to him right in the moment. Mm -hmm. And, um, came back to him and said, Hey, I, I really, I really want to be different. I don't mm -hmm. want to experience emotionally or physically like what I experienced yesterday. Mm -hmm. And, and I know that I've been kind of perpetuating my own misery. Even when, even when a better way was extended to me, I still was angry mm -hmm. and still was upset. And, and that is a definite, like, mighty change of heart type situation, you know, where just something massive shifts inside. Now, from that experience, I mean, was it just a whole new life from that point forward? Or did you still just find times and do you still find your times today kicking against the pricks or, you know, just fighting against things? What, how, how has that affected you moving forward? Not, yeah, life's been sunshine and roses since then, man. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it's been tough. It's been tough, man. Life continues to. One of the things that I think I learned there, Anasazi, that one of the trail walkers talked to me about is how life is a constant puzzle. Um, you, you might think you have it figured out in the moment. You might think things are heading in a good way, but there are, there are constantly things happening um, that shift our dynamics, that shift how we're, how we're doing things. Life's a constant puzzle, and, and, and it's kind of, not totally up to us because we have a lot of help, right? We, we have a lot of people rooting for us um, that can help us figure this out. And like you said, the most important person we have rooting for us is God and, and, and his son, Jesus Christ, that, that want to help us figure this out. But we, we, we have to use our head for something besides a hat rack, right? To use another cliche. Maybe I'm using too much cliches right now. But <laughs> regardless, the idea is we need to figure out our own path at the same time that we learn to rely on others who have trodden that path. Mm. And so parents become a huge, just to harken back to what I said earlier about my, about my dad kind of setting this tone. And, and my parents that had the courage to spend a ton of money to send me to Anasazi, mm. um, which is what I needed at the moment. And it was difficult mm. from a financial perspective. Um, not easy. Um, especially given the, you know, the humble beginnings that my dad started his new job from. And right. uh, to do the things he had to do and have the courage to send me there. And so we're not alone in this struggle. And, and, and that's what's so beautiful um, is that while we're trying to figure this out, we have so many people that are there to help us along. And of, of course, not least of which being, being our Heavenly Father in Jesus Christ. 
Mm. Um, so there have been numerous times where that experience has come back to me and has helped me. Um, when I was getting my master's degree in social work, there were times when I was so frustrated. I was working full time. I was in school full time. I had, a, I had my first child, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, this is brutal. This is tough. But that experience, Anastasi, helped me dig deep, right? It helped me get down. And, and I relied upon that experience, gosh, 10 years, 12, uh, 15 years down the road. I relied upon that experience of, of, of digging deep and not kicking against the pricks, mm. right? And allowing these difficult circumstances to, to help me learn how to, how to be better. And sometimes just learn how to, how to be persistent is all get out. Yeah. Um, I know uh, just a few more times when I made a switch from social works, I was running therapeutic boarding schools and I was, I was working as a social worker and I was mm-hmm. supervising an emotional disabilities. It's called EDP school. And I decided I, 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 I wanted to go back to school and get my master's in education and, 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 and become a principal or, or an assistant principal and work in education. Mm-hmm. When I made that switch, I took a huge pay cut. Mm. Um, my family had to rally around. My wife and I, we had a plan. We knew what we wanted to do and we had to see it through. And there were multiple times during that five-year plan that I just wondered, how are we going to make ends meet? Mm-hmm. How are we going to do this? How are we going to take care of basic necessities? Um, all those types of things. I and mean, I was in school, again, school and working and really struggled. When I became an assistant principal at Westwood, we had some serious issues and things that we were trying to tackle, mm. things we were trying to do. Again, rely And that's on at the that school experience. or as a family? At the school. Mm-hmm. At the school, yeah. In my professional life. And then, of mm-hmm. course, I talked earlier about how difficult this transition has been uh, for me to, to do this. But I firmly believe in what I'm doing and, 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 and in what we're trying to do. And again, that experience, that, that formative experience that I had there and Anasazi, those things that I learned have just come in huge um, for me and, and continue to pay huge dividends for my life. You know, I hearken back, and I'm, I'm getting a little churchy religious on this, but I'm okay with that, totally. I hearken back to Caleb in the Old Testament, who, you know, wandered yeah. the, the, the wilderness with Moses for all those years. And then they're about ready to go into the, the promised land. And eventually, Caleb says this phrase, Give me that mountain. He's old, but he's, mm-hmm. he's still saying, give me this mountain. And to me, the first time I heard that, I thought, well, that's kind of arrogant of him to say that. But as I go back and look at his life experiences were, as he trusted on the Lord, he did many impossible things. Yeah. I mean, is that a phrase that you're familiar, familiar with? Give me this mountain, or is that something that resonates with you at all? Yeah, I, you know what? What I was thinking of um, as you were telling that story is the story of is it Elijah or Elisha? I can't remember which. Where mm-hmm. um, they're about to go into battle, right? Mm-hmm. And they're totally outnumbered, mm-hmm. and the people are fearing, and and the warriors are fearing, and you know they're they're starting to cower and get nervous. And the prophet says, "They that be with us are greater than than they that be with them." Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what I thought of when you were telling that story, and. I know it's a different story, but yeah. that's one of the things that I've always hearkened to is that when I'm engaged in a cause that I know is righteous and when, when I'm trying to do my darndest, I, I firmly believe that there are people on both sides of the veil that are rooting for us and that can help us. 
And, and we, we are battling some huge adversaries today in each of our lives. Um, your podcast um, showed a lot of the difficulties that people are going through um, in their lives. And, and the things that we're, challenged, that, that we're being challenged with as a society, um, as families, and as individuals are immense. It is a tough, you know, to, to quote another religious, Matthew 24 talks about how difficult the latter days are going to be. Mm-hmm. And, and I believe we're right in the midst of that right now. It is a very, very difficult, tumultuous time to, to strive to be great and to strive to live in a, in a great way. Yeah, and to rise and, above, um, right? Yeah, and to, and to rise above, no doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with all that, I firmly believe they that be with us um, are greater um, than those that are against us. And know that, that when we're engaged in a great way in that, that we'll have tremendous amounts of help and support, mm. um, both seen and unseen. Yeah. How, how does that belief, that knowledge that you have, that the, the things that we as, a, as, an enti- as humanity are uh, trying to battle against or push through every single day, how does that help you see others in a different light? others who may be struggling or others who may be in some people's eyes, totally willingly rebelling and trying to make life miserable and hell for everybody else. Yeah, that's a great question, man. So since my NSA's experience, which I talked about in depth, and then there was multiple other experiences there that helped shape mm-hmm. um, kind of the way I see people. And since then, I, I, I actually went back to work at Anasazi as, mm-hmm. as a trail walker. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I actually worked there as a therapist as well and work with families and work with parents and work with the students or the, the, the young walkers, what they're called there. And then since then, I went into social work where I worked with people who were kind of willingly rebelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I firmly believe that my experience as someone who willfully rebelled and, and as someone who cr- was creating a lot of their own misery has allowed me to see those same people that I've worked with who are struggling to figure it out and continue to struggle to figure it out because I haven't really figured it out. Right. Mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. Have any of us really figured it out? <laughs> Again, that's the idea of life as a constant. You have, let me know. We're all con- exactly. <laughs> we're all continuing to figure it out, quote unquote. And yeah. so th- those experiences have helped me see those individuals and really understand this one, again, this phrase is used, I think, pretty trite and it's used way too much these days. But the idea is that we're all in a different place. This is a process. It really is a process of becoming, mm. right? And so some of us are making our way along that path, making our way along that process of becoming and, and, and striving to become the best that we can be and literally putting forth our best effort to try to be the best that we can be. And other folks are not. Mm. Other folks are downtrodden or, or distraught or beat down for lots of different ways. And they're having a hard time engaging. But my resistance towards them is not going to help them engage in that process. Mm. So my ability to see them as people, to see them in their own individual circumstances is, is the number one thing I can do to help them engage in that process of becoming the best they can be. Mm. That's the, that's the real crux of the matter for me. 
is, is I learned to see people or to, to try to see people in ways that will lessen the resistance and that will invite them to engage in life in a way where they can strive to become the best they can be. And the whole humanity thing and, and society thing, it starts on an individual and family level, right? The struggles that we see with individuals and families are just magnified in a huge scale and, 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 then, and then blow up out to, to society as in, in, in general. Right. And so I'm a firm believer that the internal struggles that people have are, are reflected in our society. So if we want to do something to change that, we've got to get down and start seeing people as people. The, the demonization and the dehumanization that happens um, at the drop of a hat, mm-hmm. um, where we minimize people's humanity so quickly, I think is one of the most one of the most damning things, literally, to stop our progress. Right? Mm-hmm. That's what that's what it means to be damned is to stop the progress. Is literally one of the most damning things and damaging things that we can do as human beings yeah. is when we minimize people, minimize their humanity, minimize their experiences um, yeah. that have made them who they are. So, man, there's some really good deep stuff here, and and uh, I think that uh, there's a lot more there that could be dug into. I do want to hit a couple things that you alluded to way back earlier. One of them is that you had a skewed view of liberty or freedom beforehand. (laughs) To me, individual liberty, whatever that means, to me it means different to anybody else, I'm sure, but that's almost paramount to anything that right to choose whatever path I'm going to take, you know, but that is so easily skewed. Like what you said, tell me about your view of what Liberty and freedom was then why it was skewed and what it looks like to you today. Well, my, my view of Liberty and freedom at that point in time was a very selfish view of Liberty and freedom. So I, viewed liberty and freedom in terms of myself only, right? Mm -hmm. And so with that, I could justify any action or any behavior, right, that I wanted. And so I felt this freedom where I can do whatever I want, right? I can do anything, Mm -hmm. right? I want to do. Mm -hmm. But I I was disregarding the fact that I'm, I'm constantly in relationship with people. I am constantly interacting with other people on a daily basis. And my choices have an impact on those people and a drastic impact on myself. And so my, my view of liberty and freedom at that point in time, again, was selfish. It was short-sighted and it was all rooted in this gratification, immediate gratification. Mm-hmm. And there was no real thought as to the, the implications or the impact of my, of my choices. Mm. I believe there's a huge interplay between choices, liberty, and freedom mm. and relationship. If you want to throw those, all four of those in there together. Mm. And so I was, I was kind of downplaying my own personal choices and their impact. And then of course, totally, completely dismissing um, the other people in my life. Mm. Now, so, a phrase that I've heard many people say and a phrase I've used, unfortunately, probably more times than I want to admit in my own life is what I'm doing only affects me. Yeah. It's not hurting anyone else. So what's the big deal? That's a big fat lie, isn't it? It's one of the biggest lies perpetuated by humankind. Yeah. And one of the biggest things that people say when they know they're doing something they shouldn't be doing. Mm-hmm. I've had kids tell me that a hundred times I've had it once. 
mm-hmm. right? Why do my parents care so much? I'm just hurting myself mm-hmm. if I'm hurting anyone, right? right. And uh, it's, one, it's one of the biggest lies uh, perpetuated by, by human beings to justify their own misbehavior and mistreatment of other people. Mm. Yeah. So how that's changed is how that, how that is different is that I hope that I've developed this understanding that, that nothing happens in a vacuum, right? Liberty and freedom, um, as beautiful as those are, we still have to take into account the, the humanity of other people as, as we are viewing our own individual freedom. And so hopefully a more holistic view of what it means to have liberty and to be free, um, yeah. which, which I think is pretty different if you wanted to get into like the, the political, you know, or the, right. or the governmental view of liberty and freedom, right. um, which of course there's multiple different layers of, uh, and that what I'm talking about specifically is this individual, individual. on this individual right to choose um, yeah. what we will become, which I wholeheartedly believe in. We have an individual right to choose what we will become. We just can't um, neglect the consequences of those choices. And, right. and that's what I was trying to do. Absolutely. And I think so many people try and do that is with that mindset. And I think most people have that mindset to a certain extent, but well, yeah, I want to do what can, I want to do. T- I don't want the consequence of it. Can I tell you a story real quick? Yeah. That really kind of shapes it up. And, and this has to go with that idea of justification too, because mm-hmm. I think human beings, we want to justify our decisions, right? Mm-hmm. Right or wrong. We seek to justify them in our own mind. And, and I think that that need for justification is born into our, to our makeup as human beings, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to get a little spiritual on you, it's part of our fallen state, right? Is right. that we seek to justify. We, have, we feel this desperate need to be justified. And let me tell you a story. So Sadie, my second daughter, so Kaya is my oldest daughter. Mm-hmm. And Kaya was three years old at the time. And Sadie was just about to turn one. And so um, we're giving them a bath at the same time. Mm-hmm. And anyone who's bathed small children knows what a ridiculous exercise that is <laughs> and how fruitless it can feel at times, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're giving them a bath. And sometimes it's a lot of fun, so I shouldn't talk right, trash right. about it. Sometimes it's a tremendous amount of fun. Anyway, so, so we're giving them a bath. And as they're taking a bath, Kaya would lift her legs up and then splash them down really hard and uh-huh. splash Sadie, Right. Mm-hmm. Well, Sadie was like not even a year old getting water up in her face and she was crying and, uh, you know, like, Kaya, please stop doing that. We, you're, mm-hmm. you're splashing your sister. We don't want you to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, Kaya does it again. Boom. Again, the same reaction from uh-huh. Sadie. And I'm not sure how many times this happened. It probably happened two or three times. Right. Uh-huh. Finally, I was finally I was like, Kaya, stop it right now. You've got to stop doing that mm-hmm. or I'm going to get you out. And she goes, Dad. I'm just doing what kids do. Uh, a three-year-old, uh, completely and totally justifying her behavior uh, because I'm just doing what kids do, uh, right? So if a three-year-old feels that need for justification, think about me as a 42-year-old, mm-hmm, right? right? Well, my, my justifications now are completely and totally sophisticated. Mm-hmm. After honing them for years and years and years, each of us as human beings mm-hmm. has that innate need for justification, I believe. Mm-hmm. And we continuously justify our actions and our behaviors and our thoughts and our feelings and, our, and the way we view other people all the time. 
And that need for justification gets in the way of our ability to see other, as pe- see other people as people and to see other people's humanity because we can quickly, in a split second, justify our view of them. Yeah. And, and that's one of the most damning characteristics of human beings right there. Mm. And so becoming aware of that, I think, is, is one of the hugest pieces. And it kind of harkens back to that question earlier um, that, you, that, that you asked about how I see people who are kind of willfully rebelling, right? right? Like myself. Well, that helps a ton, um, yeah. is, is understanding that deep need for justification. Mm. That's super interesting and, and food for thought. I know that uh, it's a battle that I fight every day, and I think... No. Yeah. 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 We're, we, we all fight this. That's the common battle of humanity, if you ask me. Right. Um, and again, uh, there's lots of battles we all fight as humans, but that's, mm-hmm. that's one of the biggest ones, I think. Yeah. Man, it's good stuff. Good stuff, Richard. I want to go back way to the beginning of our conversation one more time here, okay. or at least close to the beginning of it. Okay. You alluded to a life-altering experience on your mission, but oh, yeah. you were not living the way that people would typically think, oh, you know, he's an 18-year-old kid. He's in Anasazi. He's done all these things leading up to this that have taken him to Anasazi and doing this stuff. Typically, that would be something that somebody would go, huh, that guy's, no matter what his beliefs were beforehand, he's not going on a mission. Because that's something that boys at that time did between 19 and, you know, early 20, 23, Mm -hmm. maybe years old. So what happened that got you on a mission? And then let's talk about that experience you had while you were on your mission. Yeah, so after I got back from Anasazi, um, I had another really kind of transformative experience. So coming back from Anasazi was, it was the loneliest two or three months of my life, Mm. um, to be quite honest with you, because I had a lot of friends that were great people, um, but they were doing things that I couldn't, that, that, that I couldn't do. Mm. Just for me personally, they, they had become something that I knew would lead to a deep, dark place. And I didn't want to be in that deep, dark place anymore. And I made commitments to myself and to my family and to other people that I wasn't going to go to that deep, dark place anymore. And so I decided that I did not want to engage in that type of, um, those types of substances anymore. Mm-hmm. And so when I got back from Anasazi, my friends um, had planned this humongous party. Mm. And uh, my parents were brave enough to allow me to go to it. Mm. And again, they could have, I mean, I I could have gone regardless Mm -hmm. um, because I was 18, I was 18 years old at the time, almost, almost 19. Right. And uh, I could have been like, well, I'm going, I don't care what you say kind of thing. But my parents Mm -hmm. gave me a car and said, yeah, you can go down there. So I actually went back down to that party and about 15 or 20 minutes in, I, I made my rounds and said hi to people and talked to a few people and, and realized that was not the place I wanted to be. Mm. And uh, so I left, I left, I, I, I texted one of my good buddies and said, Hey, sorry, man, I can't, I can't do this. Um, you know, they had saved a bunch of stuff for me. They had all kinds of different, um, different things. And so it was, it was kind of a downer when I left for everybody, but I, I knew that I could stay. Mm. So I left. And uh, from then on out, anytime I felt tempted or anytime I felt, it, it got a little bit easier. Mm. It still was hard, man. There were still times I was so lonely and I was so like, man, why am I doing this? And, you know, it would be so much easier to go back and have all my friends and do all this stuff and, and, and engage in all that stuff that I was doing. But I was like, you know what? 
I, I made a commitment and my parents were there all along the way, helping me all along the way. So mm-hmm. I kind of had this transformative experience there that kind of cemented um, what I really wanted. Um, and from that point in time, I started to explore my spirituality in a huge way. Mm-hmm. And so what's crazy is when I was at Anasazi, I have really naturally curly hair. Mm-hmm. And so as I was at Anasazi, I developed natural dreadlocks. Mm-hmm. And I kept those dreadlocks after I got off the trail and after I came back home. And so mm-hmm. I went to church and, and I had big old fat dreadlocks, mm-hmm. right? And I looked different than anyone else in that congregation. Mm-hmm. No one else there had dreads. And uh, I was, you know, doing my thing. And I was going to church because I felt like that's where I, that's where I needed to be. Mm-hmm. I had, had some really powerful spiritual experiences that had let me know that, that God lived. And I had mm-hmm. no doubt in my mind. And so I made a determination that I wanted to go and I wanted to share this newfound light in my life and share with others. So I decided to go on a mission. And I had to, I had to go through a, a pretty lengthy uh, repentance process and, and go through some things that I needed to go through and ended up going on a mission. Mm. So I got called to the Utah Provo mission, oh, which when I, got, when I received my call, I cried, literally. Mm cried myself to sleep that night because um, you didn't want to go there huh or dude, why? I, I didn't want to go home teaching for two years man yeah that yeah. is not what i wanted and i thought that's what i was going to do i was like what am why am i going you know i had a friend who was going to brazil mm-hmm. i had another friend who was going to uh, micronesia guam mm-hmm. i had a friend who was going to france I, yeah. I, you know mexico i had friends all and i'm going to provo utah as a mm-hmm. mormon missionary are you serious mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. so upset, mm. right? Well, quickly that subsided, and I, I I got over it, and I was like, okay, well, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna we're we're gonna make the most of this, and mm. got on my mission, and realized quickly why I was in the Utah Provo mission, mm. um, because my mission president was phenomenal. I wasn't called necessarily to that mission; I was called to that mission president, mm. in my opinion. And I I think that can be different for different missionaries, but for me, uh, my mission president was the number one reason I was called to that mission because I needed him. He was phenomenal. What's his name? I'll just tell you. His name is Hugh Gregson. Mm. And uh, he's actually from Washington, uh, Bellevue. Mm. Oh, okay. Bellevue, cool. Washington. Yeah. Phenomenal individual, right? And he helped me tremendously. When I first got to my mission, he, he called me in and met with me and, and, and he said, hey, I see all, all these things that you've been through. I, I, see, I see what you struggled with. I don't want anyone on your mission to know about these struggles, Mm. right? No reason to bring them up. Mm. And I I was kind of taken back at first. And I thought about it a little bit. And and, and he said, so make me a commitment. He said, because you'll hear missionaries telling stories of the things they did before they came on their mission. Mm. And they're doing it in a way to to, to act cool or to to try to gain street cred or whatever. Mm -hmm. He goes, you've done all kinds of things and you can enjoy, you can engage in those conversations, but I'm telling you it's fruitless and it will get you nowhere. Mm. And I want you to promise me right now that you won't engage in those conversations and that, and that you won't talk about these things. And I made him a commitment right there that I wouldn't do it. And I lived up to it and numerous times. He was 100% correct. Mm. Right. And I, I held my tongue. I, I bit my tongue and didn't talk about it. I just stayed focused and it was powerful, mm. powerful for me to realize that. And then by the end of my mission to, to have it be, it, it, it wasn't something that I even really cared about talking about. 
Um, now, since then, I've seen I've seen there's bits and pieces of things I learned through those experiences that I've been able to use as a social worker and things like that. Mm-hmm. But my mission present was powerful for me, and he helped me stay focused on what I was there to do, which which was to preach and teach the gospel. Mm. So near the end of my mission, I'm serving in St. George. I've, I've got about a month left, a month and a half left. I'm in my last area. And uh, one of the things we did in Utah, since we covered so such a big populations, because we, we would cover whole stakes, right? Mm-hmm. So we wouldn't get to know the individual members very well, typically, is we would try to speak in church as much as possible. So I was speaking in church, and I had two sacrament meeting talks that day. Mm-hmm. Um, I had one at 9 a.m., and then I had another one at 1. Mm-hmm. And so I prepared my talk that I was going to give in both of them. And when I got to the 1 o'clock talk, I, for some reason, when I got up onto the stand, I felt the strong impression that I needed to talk about something totally different than I had prepared. Mm. So I actually decided to, to talk about my, my parents' conversion story mm. and, and tell that story. And so as I start telling that story, there was a lady in the audience who was the wife of the missionary that I was telling the story about. Mm. And her husband was on, had just left from partaking of the sacrament and was going to Las Vegas to fly out for a business trip. Mm-hmm. And she called the she called the house and got a hold of him and said, "Hey, you you've got to come back to church real quick. I think the missionary uh, that this missionary speaking is the son of the family you taught on your mission." Mm-hmm. And so he came right back over. I I finished up my talk and then sat down. And uh, after the sacrament meeting, um, I'm shaking hands and and he comes running, literally sprinting, mm-hmm. <laughs> not running, but you know, a fast right. walking from the back and he walks up and he gives me this hugest hug after I've mm-hmm. shaken up a few other hands and talked to some folks and stuff, gives me the hugest hug and looks at me and grabs my shoulders and says, you don't know who I am, but I'm that missionary that, that knocked on your parents' door mm-hmm. and walked on your parents' porch. And it was, it was a profound experience. It still brings tears to my eyes right now. I was talking about it yeah. and it, it was incredible to go and talk to him and he talked about the joy that he felt um, knowing that he had baptized that family and now that that their sons were on missions and we were able to reconnect in a really powerful way and um, wow. and really helped me feel w- what I've felt numerous times but feel it in a more palpable way just a lot of gratitude again this idea that we're not in this alone there there are people fighting for us and and rooting for us and supporting us and encouraging us as we go through this, uh, this crazy thing called life. And just another um, kind of testimony, another, another witness right there of the, of, of the joy that can come from engaging in a powerful way to become the best we can be. And, mm. and uh, yeah, so that, that was the experience I was alluding to that was really, really near and dear to my heart. That's um, super cool. Yeah, really love that individual. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And this no has problem. been a uh, just a conversation full of awesome stuff. I know that it, well, it's been very helpful to me. And honestly, doing this podcast is kind of selfish. <laughs> I love <laughs> learning things about people. I love it. I can look at, look at myself and go, okay, what do I need to do to improve myself? Or if I get in that situation, am I going to act yeah. the way that person did? Or am I going to do something different because of the mess that person got in in that situation? Yeah. And uh it's helpful to me, but man, it's helpful to so many other people too. So um, before we uh, close this down, look ahead a little bit. 
what is a legacy that you want to leave for your children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren down the line? What do you want them to remember Grandpa Richard as? That's a great question. I don't think much about that whole legacy thing, but, you know, I, I hope that they can remember me as someone that had a love uh, for people, mm-hmm. um, that really loved people in all varieties, shapes, and sizes. I hope that they can remember me as someone that, that really cared um, about individuals and that cared about um, helping people become the best that they can be. I hope that they remember me as a person who, who strived to be honest and strive to have uh, ultimate integrity and remember me as someone that just kept on, kept, kept it on. That's not the right phrase. That <laughs> someone that keeps on keeping on, right? Someone mm. that just keeps on plugging away. I love the quote. I, I think Babe Ruth's the one who said it first, or I'm sure a bunch of other people have said it too, but it's really hard to beat someone who won't quit. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, I hope that I hope that my kids see me as someone who, who persevered, um, someone who is persistent and someone who didn't give up easy. And yeah, so those would be kind of the three of the things that I hope. And then I'm a firm believer that, um, you know, the best thing I can do for my kids, right, is to love th- their mother. Mm. And I hope I hope that they regard me as someone that. Um, at all costs, loved uh, loved his wife tremendously through thick and thin and through everything, mm-hmm. and uh, just thought the world and continue. You know, I, of course, I continue to think the world of of right. Amber and all the things that she is and all the things that she does for me and my kids. So um, those would be those would be the things I hope that they remember me for. And any any other positive things on top of that would be icing on the cake. <laughs> those yeah, would be, absolutely. Uh, those would be the things and. There's going to be a few, probably a few negative things in there too. Probably that's all right. Yeah, we're all we're, we're all human. We're all trying to be the best we can be, making Absolutely. mistakes all along the way. <laughs> awesome. Any other words of wisdom that you feel you'd like to share before we uh, close this down? Uh, no, I just man, th- thank you so much for letting me share the story and yeah, um, let me let me talk about some things that are you know some some powerful experiences in my life that have helped shape me and helped me become who I am and. It's been, it's been really cool to, to reflect. I love this idea of reflecting, I think, is, is really, really powerful. Yeah. And, and your, your, your podcast allows, allows that space, mm-hmm. creates that space, which is really, really, um, I think, a great um, thing to do and something that we as human beings can, we can create that space for reflection on, on, on our own lives and the choices that we're making and the, the, the things that we're doing, the thoughts we're thinking. Um, it can lead to a, to a refined sense of being fine sense of who we are so awesome i appreciate appreciate you doing that so there you have it life is a constant puzzle richard long did an amazing job on this podcast i hope that you got at least something out of it that can lead you to make better choices now and in the future to improve your life so that your own legacy can be one that your ancestors look to and gain strength from and gain a desire to be better themselves. That is really one of the main purposes of this podcast is to allow us to share and to motivate us to share our stories with those who come behind us. I love reading the stories of those who went before me. It gives me such strength to know that yes, they were human. They made mistakes. They were imperfect, but so am I. 
but future generations can get just as much out of our stories as what we can get out of those who came before us. We are here and as they were there to build a foundation for this world to become a little bit better place. And just imagine what the world is going to look like two or three generations from now. I mean, it just boggles my mind to think of the amazing things that our kids and our grandkids and our great grandkids will have the opportunities to do in their lives. And it just brings me joy to know that what I'm striving to do here is just a little building block that helps them become who they can be at that time. One last invitation to subscribe to the Journey Through Life podcast so that you can get all of the future episodes that are coming up. I have some amazing guests coming up, and I look forward to getting even more amazing guests. If you are one of those future amazing guests, an ordinary person with an extraordinary story, please go to the website, jtlpod.com, and look up Share My Journey, and just share your contact information with me a little bit about your story and we'll get in contact and we'll have you on as a guest anyways have a fantastic week i look forward to the next episode